Uh, so today we are starting a sermon series called How Not to Read the Bible. Um, at CBCB, um, the Bible is important to us, right, for at least three reasons. And one is we're a Bible church, and it says it on the sign. And like our coffee mugs and T-shirts and stuff say Bible. So it's really, it's, it's really important to us. And also because we know that the Bible is the best-selling, most important, most life-changing book in history. Um, but more importantly than that, number two, is that we believe in and worship the God of the Bible. And we spent the last couple of months kind of wrapping our heads around the statement that the Bible is God communicating with us. And that's just so, so important. God reveals himself to us through the Bible. It's, it's, God's, it's God's word. And then number three, we love the Bible because we're Jesus followers. You know, in the New Testament, the word, word, um, means a couple of different things. Uh, number one, Jesus is described as the living word of God. And this is the Greek word logos, and it means like um, a revelation of who God really is, like his core, right? His, his, his real mind, his real heart, his real spirit, his real, the essence of who God really is, is the word of God. So look what it says. This is John 1, 1. It says, in the beginning, the word already existed. So think of that. That's the heart of God, right? The mind of God, the passion of God, the essence of who God is already existed. And the word was with God, and the word was God. You notice that the word, word, is capitalized in your Bibles there because it's talking about a person. Verse 14 says, so the word became human and made his home among us, and he was filled with unfailing love and faithfulness, and we have seen his glory, the glory of the Father's one and only Son. So we see the true logos, right? We see the true word of God most clearly in Jesus. But we also get the word, word, in the New Testament from a Greek word, rhema, and this word actually means like the spoken or written words of God. So like in Matthew 4, remember when Jesus was tempted to turn the stones into bread? And he said, man, is live by bread alone, but by the words of God. Or in Ephesians, when it's talking about the, the things that we fight Satan with, it says that we use the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. So in the New Testament, the word of God can mean Jesus or the Bible. And what's really interesting is it, it, it's both. Look what Jesus says in John 5, 39. He says, you search the scriptures because you think they give you eternal life. But the scriptures point to me. And Jesus said this over and over. The scriptures point to me. The law and the prophet and the writings, he's talking about all of the scripture, all of the Bible is all fulfilled. It all becomes real. It all comes to a head in me. So God's word, his, his heart, his mind, his essence, who God really is, is Jesus and this book that is about Jesus. So if we're going to, if we're going to really understand God and if we're going to really hear from God and we're going to really see God and if we're going to really experience, that's what we want, right? We want to experience God. And if we're going to really, if we're going to really know God, we're going to know him best through Jesus and through this book that's about Jesus. So can we all agree by saying amen that the Bible is really important? Amen. Okay, so we'll start with that. Here's the problem. Um, 
sometimes the Bible is not that easy to understand. Um, there's a lot of stuff in the Bible that just seems unbelievable or confusing or weird or just plain wrong. Like, the Bible can really seem to be pro-violence. I mean, especially in the Old Testament, God kills thousands of people. In the flood, I guess he kills millions of people. And yet the Bible says that God is love. So, like, how does that work? The Bible can seem to be pro-slavery. There's all kinds of stuff in the Bible about how slaves should act and how their masters should. Is the Bible, Bible pro-slavery? And the Bible seems to be sometimes anti-science. You know, when I was a kid, I was told that the Bible proves that the world is no more than 10,000 years old. And yet scientists have these bones that are millions of years old. So how does that work? You know, do we have to choose? Is either, it's either the Bible is right or science is right. Um, sometimes the Bible seems like it's really against women. Um, in the Old Testament, man, there's a lot of stories of the people that are held up to be heroes, right? The heroes of the Bible, and they've got multiple wives. They're trading their wives like property, and that's not just in the Old Testament, man. Even in the New Testament, Paul says that women should always be submissive to men and keep their mouths closed during church. I mean, can that be right? Plus, what about all these rules? No shrimp, no cutting your sideburns, no mixing two fabrics in one shirt. What is that, right? Did you know that, the, that football is outlawed in the Bible? The Old Testament specifically says we're not to touch the skin of a dead pig. <laughs> football. <laughs> Plus there's so much just weird stuff, dabbing blood on your ears and dabbing blood on people's toes and cutting off foreskins, not, cu- not cooking goats in their mother's milk. It's just, it's just weird stuff. Um, do you know the Bible actually talks about unicorns? Seriously. King James, it talks about unicorns. Plus, the Bible makes it seem like there's only one way to get to God. Like, is that reasonable? There are seven billion people in the world. There are about 4,000 religions in the world. What about really good, moral, honest Hindus and Muslims? People that haven't heard of Jesus. Is God gonna send them to hell? I mean, some parts of the Bible are really hard to understand. And if you're a, if you're a, how many of you are Bible-believing, Jesus-following people? Okay, let me ask you a question. Like, what do you do with that stuff? How do you handle those passages? I'll tell you what I did for most of my life is I ignored them. It's pretty sweet, really. I had my little black Bible when I was a kid, and it had, like, the edges of the pages were gold. So that's how you know it's from God. And, like, it had my name written on the cover in gold, and it had a little red ribbon, and it was full of lots of stuff that I didn't understand. A lot of these and nows, you know. Oh, it seemed like a lot of begatting going on. Uh, and, you know, verily this, and verily that, and verily I saith unto ye, I didn't understand it's a bunch of stuff in that Bible. And then I opened up Revelation. <laughs> like, 
I don't think I understandeth any of that. So I just went with, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Right? At least I, I think that's what it tells me. And I'm going to tell you, that worked pretty good for me. For, I don't know, like 13, 14 years, it was, that was fine. Um, it worked out pretty good. Really cool stories about, you know, giants and walls falling down and God helping his people overcome their enemies and amazing teaching from Jesus and he's healing people and he's resurrecting people and he's dying for us and he's giving us eternal life. And so I just kind of like skipped over the hard stuff. But then when I got a little older, I started asking some of these hard questions and it got really hard for me to believe the Bible. And frankly, there was some stuff in the Bible that I didn't want to believe. You know, I remember as a teenager reading some of the stuff about slavery in the Bible, and it's like, God's okay with slavery? I mean, that, that can't be right. But I kind of got away with it because I was going to church all the time, and so I was surrounded by Christians, and they all seemed to believe, you know? So I just thought they probably know something I don't know, right? And maybe someday Jesus will explain it to me or whatever. And that sounds like a real cop-out, but I'm guessing I'm not the only person in the room that did that. Um, a lot of us went with this idea that, like, we don't understand it, but it's in the Bible, it must be right. And I think in that era and at that stage of my life, that worked. Um, and maybe we were just, like, scared to dig deeper because, like, maybe we were going to, it was just, maybe it was just too hard to do the work to understand it, or maybe kind of like deep down we were afraid that we were gonna find out that some things that we thought were true weren't true. Or maybe we just thought it was just too much work to try to understand it, and so we decided not to think about it. But here's what happened to me. So now I get out in the world a little bit, right? And now I'm going to school, and now I'm running into some non-Christians that are asking these same questions. And they were so non-Christians that they were making some really compelling arguments against the Bible. And those people were just as sure that the Bible was wrong as all my Bible friends were sure that the Bible was right. And they made, they made some pretty good cases. I mean, what about slavery? What about the violence? What about God ordering the destruction of a whole city? Even the kids, even the babies, even the animals. And what about science? And what about people that never heard of Jesus? Right? And so I didn't have an answer for those people. And worse than that, I didn't have an answer for myself. So when people came to me and said, oh, so you're a Christian, so your God approves of slavery because the Bible is full of instructions for slave owners and for slaves. And I thought it was like my job to somehow try to defend that. And like, you know, slavery is not that bad. <laughs> Slavery's pretty bad, right? Uh, like, well, slavery was different back then. You know, I was, just, I was trying to think of a way to like make it okay. Um, and I wish I'd have understood then. I wish I would have known to say, God isn't condoning slavery. He's bringing a message of healing and hope and freedom into a world that includes slavery. So of course, to bring that message to the world, he had to talk to slaves and he had to talk to slave owners. And over the course of this story, God is actually moving people away from slavery and into freedom and equality. I, I was fighting the wrong fight. I was, I, was, I was like, I was 
in an argument, but I was making the wrong argument. And when people said to me, so Christian, right? Um, so women aren't allowed to talk in your church because that's what it says. It's like, what do I do? Do I defend that? Yeah, women should just shut up in church. Do I tear that page out of the Bible? What am I supposed to do with that? I, I, I didn't, I, it was hard. I, I, I didn't, I, I, I just hid from the question. I just avoided the questions. Um, and people ask, so you believe in unicorns? Because there's like eight passages in the Old Testament that refer to unicorns. Should I say, yes, unicorns are real? Or should I say, no, the Bible is silly? And so, you know what I wish? I wish I would have asked those questions for real way earlier and not been afraid that I would find the truth. You know, in John 8, 32, Jesus said that you'll know the truth and the truth will make you free. But for most of my life, I didn't, I wasn't free. I didn't have that freedom because I didn't dig deep enough to find the truth. I just settled for a really shallow understanding. And then when people or Satan or my own doubts started kind of picking apart that understanding, it was hard to hold on to my faith. And I don't want that to happen to you. And I don't want that to happen to your kids. And I don't want that to happen to your grandkids. And that's why we're doing this. Because I gotta tell you, the enemy is so much better now than he was then. And movies and TV, on social media, even in school, Kids are hearing amazing arguments against Christianity and against the Bible way earlier in life than I did. And we better ask these questions now. We better ask them for real. And the solution is not stubbornly defending this shallow understanding of the Bible. Yeah, God hates women. God loves violence. God loves slavery. God has been disproven by science, but we should just blindly believe in him anyway. That's, that's, not, the, that's not the solution. And the solution isn't just throwing out the Bible and just, oh, I guess it's all wrong. I guess it's all garbage. Just because certain parts of it confuse us. The solution is really digging in and really trying to understand what the Bible is really trying to say to us and not being, able to, not being afraid to ask these hard questions and, and, and not being afraid to open up our minds to what the answers are. And it's hard work. But, you know, we have the Holy Spirit. We have each other. And we have Jesus, you know, we have a brain that God gave us. We have his word, the spirit of Jesus living inside of us, plus his written word to reveal unto us. So we are on a quest to really understand what the Bible is really trying to say to us, including the hard parts. And this isn't new. This isn't new. Jesus spoke in parables all the time, right? Jesus was constantly telling stories about fish and dirt and seeds and people and farming, right? He was always, the weather. He was always using these parables. And so people that weren't really, people that were like casual listeners to Jesus, they didn't know what the heck he was talking about. And then he would take his disciples, the ones that were really following, the ones that were really listening, the ones that were really pressing in, that were really doing the work, that really wanted to know him. He would pull them aside and really explain the stories to them and he would unpack these amazing life-changing meanings out of his parables, but only for them. And that was the reward. 
right, of the ones that were really digging, the ones that were really trying, the ones that were really listening and really following Jesus. So Hebrews 6 says that God is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. And that's, that's the reward, right? When we really press in and we really dig, then he will reveal the truth of scripture to us, but we gotta, we gotta, be, we gotta be brave enough to know it may not say what we thought it was gonna say. And we gotta be willing to do the work to dig it out. So let's, let's do that. Let's don't settle for just old understandings or these surface readings, because if we do, we're just gonna get confused by these weird passages. Let's diligently seek to know and to understand God through his word. You know, Matthew 7, 7, Jesus said, here it is, keep on asking and you'll receive what you ask for. Keep on seeking and you will find. Keep on knocking and the door will be open to you. So let's do that. Let's ask and let's knock and let's seek and let's dig in and really try to really understand what it's really trying to say to us. So as I was preparing this series, I stumbled across a great tool to help us dig in and understand the Bible, especially the weird parts, and it's this book called How Not to Read the Bible, written by a guy named Dan Kimball, and I love the little tagline here, making sense of the anti-women, anti-science, pro-violence, pro-slavery, and other crazy-sounding parts of scriptures. How not to read the Bible, and Dan Kimball does an awesome job in fact, so awesome that we're gonna use this book as kind of a guide for the next several weeks. And as we dig into these weird, hard parts of the Bible, to, if we dig in and really try to understand what they're really trying to say, this book is gonna be like a great shovel for us. It's gonna really help us dig in and understand it. So a lot of what I'm gonna teach the next few weeks is just right out of this book, especially um, the four ways that Dan suggests, this author suggests, that we try to see and engage the Bible. It's like, like four paradigms, four ways to look at the Bible. And if we come to the Bible through those like, lenses, if we come to the Bible through those paradigms, um, like, it makes a lot more sense, and the confusing stuff is a lot less confusing. And I think you've heard these before, at least some of them. I call them the rules of engagement. And so these rules of engagement are gonna help us make sense of some pretty weird stuff in the Bible. So today, a little groundwork. We're gonna talk about these four rules. Um, the first rule, rule one, the Bible is a library, not a book. How many of you heard that in this church before? We say that kind of a lot. It's a collection of a whole bunch of books. I want you to see how complex this thing is so you can see that it deserves work and effort on our part to dig it out. Um, it's a whole bunch of different books. It's, 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 it's a collection of, it's not even books. Did you know, do you know the codex, this format of a book that's bound in the back and opened in the front, did you know that didn't even exist until about Jesus' time? So this idea that Elijah was sitting under a tree reading a book, there was no such thing as a book. They were scrolls, a whole bunch of different scrolls. Almost nobody had all the scrolls, right? They had a copy of this and a copy of that. So this is, this is a whole bunch of, this is a whole bunch of scrolls, and it's written by more than 40 different people. And they're all, they're all inspired by God, for sure, but they're all also human, right? So they all have a little different perspective, right? They all have a little bit of a personality. Otherwise, why do we need Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? 
right? They're all telling the same story. Why do we have four of them? Because we want different perspectives. We're rounding out the picture. We want to fully understand it. So let me put it like this. Um, so Margaret was just up here. If you ask Margaret, well, how'd you and Larry get together? Right? She'll tell you a story. You ask me, how'd you and Margaret get together? I'll tell you a story. Both stories are true, but they're not going to be exactly the same story. Right? She's going to emphasize some really unimportant stuff. <laughs> right? Right? And she, she might leave out some really important details like how superior I was to all of her previous boyfriends. And there's, it's, they're, but we're both telling the truth. We're both telling the truth, right? But it's going to be a little bit, and if you ask me, like if you ask me in the elevator when we've got one minute, I'm going to give you a little different story than if you ask me at dinner when we've got an hour to talk it through. And so I think we have to, having multiple authors with multiple perspectives and multiple personality means we've got a lot of work to do if we're going to really try to really understand what the Bible is really trying to say to me. If I really want to know what God was trying to say through Matthew, can you see how it would behoove me to know a little bit about Matthew? Right? It's 40 different authors. It's written in three different languages, and it's all smushed together. And bad news, none of those is English. And so, of course, the, 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 and listen, translators can be inspired by the Holy Spirit just like the original authors can. But interpreting does bring in some weird stuff. So like one of the main resources that, that modern day English translators use, one of the great resources is the Septuagint. That's, the Septuagint is a Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible. And now we're going to translate that into English. Can you see how messy that might get. Um, the King James came from the Latin Vulgate, which is um, like all the Hebrew and Greek got translated into Latin, and then they translated that Latin into English. That's where the unicorn thing comes from. That's where the unicorn thing comes from. So the Hebrew word for this, this beast is reim, and it was like a big one-horned, I don't know, something, some kind of animal, an ox maybe? Somebody said maybe it was a rhinoceros, but it was a big animal, like with one, maybe it was one continuous horn, or maybe it was like a rhinoceros with a horn on his nose or something. So when that was translated to Greek, it became monokeros, one horn. When that was translated into Latin, it became uni, single, cornus, horn, uni, cornus. When that got translated into English, we didn't have a word. So they just took the Latin word, unicorn. Right? That's it. It's not, is it in the King James Bible? Unicorns, yeah, but just a little, doesn't take a genius to see. He's not talking about rainbow-colored, magical, flying horses, right? So the Holy Spirit can inspire translators just like he can authors, but if we really want to understand this thing, we've got to remember it's, it's a whole bunch of different scrolls and writings and books, and they've all been through the translation process. And look, obviously, God speaks Texan, right? I think that's self-evident, right? But Moses didn't, and Elijah didn't, and Peter and Paul didn't. So we gotta really bear all this stuff. It's 40 authors in three languages, and it was written over 1,500 years of time. I mean, even in English, right? Words have changed in our lifetime, right? Think of somebody that's 90 years old in your life. Think, if you say the word phone to them, that means something, right? Now think of somebody that's 40 in your life. The word phone means something completely different to them. It's just one word, but it's, its meaning has actually changed just over 50 years, right? Think of what your great-great-grandmother thought the word gay means, right? 
the meaning of that word in our culture, in our language, our language has changed. And it's not, it's not just the language, it's multiple cultures. This was written in Egypt. This was written in Assyria. This was written in Babylon. This was written in Jerusalem. This was written in Rome. It's all these different cultures. So if we're going to really understand it, we're going to have to dig and understand what those cultures were about, right? It's, it's, it's different. Words mean different things in different cultures. And if you're reading in the Bible and it says a woman went out with her head covered, and that was 2,000 years ago in Israel, it probably is trying to imply that she was modest, it's probably trying to imply that she was like a really pious person. But in our culture, if we say a woman without, went out with her head covered, it was probably because she was having a bad hair day, right? It's this, we're saying the same words. They mean different things just because it's in a different culture. You see how hard? This is a lot of work, right? And also the hardest one maybe of all is it's written in all these different genres. So it's history and discourse and letters and poems and songs and lots of stories. And you, can, you can't read those things all the same way Right? Poetry is, is about evoking emotion, right? And so a, a poem is the author inviting you to feel what I feel, right? And so, of course, it uses lots of imagery, but history is mostly just about getting the facts right. Read the beginning of Nehemiah. He's saying what happened, what day it happened, and what day of the month it was, and what time of year it was, and who was there, and what part of the kingdom they were in. It's, 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 that's history. He's really being literal when he's kind of spelling that stuff out, but that's a lot different than when you read a poem, Right? We read stories and poems and history and letters all complete. The letters in the New Testament are letters written to the church at Rome or the church at Ephesus or the church at Corinth. These, these are letters. And so they were written to specific people at a specific time, a lot of times about specific problems or specific questions. So think of this. Just think of the genres, right? The same word. Think of the word valley, right? What is a valley? It's a low place between hills. Right? So we're reading the story of David and Goliath, the valley of Elah. Is that a literal place? Yeah. It's telling a historical story. It's talking about this valley. It's actual dirt. It's a place that actually exists. But David, who's in that story, wrote a poem, the 23rd Psalm, where he talked about the valley of the shadow of death. Is that a literal place? Is that a low area of dirt between hills? No, that's, 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 like a, that's like a season, of, that's like an image of a season that we go through or an emotion that we feel. It's the same word, valley and valley. How do you know it doesn't mean the same thing? It's because it's, it's a different genre. It's the same word. It means two different things just because it's a different genre. So we gotta think about all these different authors and all these different languages and all this time and all this culture and all of these genres. And so if we really wanna understand the Bible, if we really want to really know what God is really trying to say to us, it starts with rule one. The Bible isn't a book. It's a library. Rule two. The Bible was written for us, not to us. The Bible was written for us to teach us about God, to teach us about who he is and his plan to redeem the world through Jesus. And according to Paul, it was also written to inspire us and to correct us and to show us how to live, and to tell us when we're doing wrong. It was written for us, but it wasn't written to us. The Old Testament was written to Jews 4,000 years ago, right? And a lot of it's instructions about how to survive in the desert. And a lot of it's how that they, a lot of it's their history of just kind of where their family came from. A lot of the New Testament is these epistles. This, this is one of the most amazing things. These, these are letters. 
that, that Peter wrote or John wrote or Paul wrote, a whole bunch of them, to different churches. And so, like, they would start these churches, and then he would go, they have email, right? They couldn't just pop in for a visit or something like that. He's thousands of miles away. So he would write a letter. It might take months for that letter to get there, right? And then somebody would say, oh, we got a letter from Paul. Come read it. And so they would come up, and they would read the letter to the church. That's, that's, these, are, these, are, these are letters. When we read these things, we have to remember we are literally reading someone else's mail, you know, a lot of times they were responding to problems or specific questions that they had been asked. We can learn a ton from these things, but we have to remember these are written for us, but they weren't written to us. Um, Robert Emmett was my pastor for many years and really kind of my mentor as a pastor, especially with preaching. And just imagine if Robert wrote me a letter, right? So he's moved to Colorado now. And now he's sending this letter back to me, and he's been watching our church online and keeping up what's going on. So he writes me this letter. Dear Larry, you are the greatest pastor ever <laughs> and by far my best protege. I love how you dig into tr the truth out of Scripture. You are a brilliant communicator. Also, you're wise, loving, kind, and really good-looking. In your last letter, you asked me if your sermons are getting too long, and they are. So start preaching shorter sermons. Also, your breath stinks. So eat an Altoid before every service. Okay, this is a letter Robert wrote me. It's valuable to me. It's meaningful to our church. If another pastor, Pastor Hank, found that letter like 2,000 years from now, there's plenty they can learn, right, about the important qualifications of a pastor, how long a sermon should be, uh, the importance of breath mints. But that doesn't mean that Pastor Hank should necessarily shorten his sermons. And that doesn't mean that Pastor Hank necessarily needs Altoids. That doesn't mean that Pastor Hank is necessarily wise or loving or kind or good looking. So it can be useful for him, but it wasn't written to him. You see how he'd want to understand that if he was gonna really get the maximum value out of this 2,000-year-old letter that he found. So when we read the stories in the Old Testament or the poems and Psalms or the letters in the New Testament, we can learn a lot from them. But if we're gonna get maximum value, we have to remember the Bible was written for us, but it wasn't written to us. Third rule, never read a Bible verse. <laughs> that one really struck me funny. Um, we should probably amend it. We should never read just a Bible verse. Or we should never read a Bible verse in isolation by itself. This is a thing that we're, I think, in our world, in our season of history or whatever, notoriously, everybody's got a Bible verse on a coffee mug, right? Everybody posts a meme with a Bible verse on it. We've all got the T-shirt. I can do all things through Christ, right? I have no other plans I have for you, right? We got the bumper stickers and all that stuff. And I think we're so used to headlines, that it's really easy just to grab one of those things and kind of build your whole theology around it, but the context matters. You can't just arbitrarily grab a verse out of the Bible. We need to know what was going on before that. We need to know what was going on after that. We need to know what was happening when this was said. I'll show it to you really quick. Let's just say we pick out Matthew 27, 5. I think we have it to put on the screen. Here it comes. Then Judas went out and hanged himself. Okay, now we take another verse, Luke 10, 38. This is Jesus talking. 
Now go out and do the same. You see how problematic it is when we just grab one, grab another, grab another, and just try to make it say what we want it to say. We got to ask what was going on when Judas hanged himself, right? We got to ask ourselves what was going on when Jesus, what was it that Jesus was saying we should do the same thing? Dave, uh, this Dan Kimball has a great point in his book. You know who gets this thing of context better than anybody? George Lucas in the Star Wars movies. Because you know how they all start? Show them, show them, Matt. I think we have this video. That's how they all start, right? What, what's going on there? He's setting the stage, right? He's telling you what's been going on. He's telling you who some of these characters are. He's telling you kind of where we're at in the story. And so now, he, now you're up to speed. Now we can get right into it. And it's the same with the Bible. We can't just randomly pull a verse or a story or a poem out of context. We have to read it in context. We have to understand like where it fits. It's, where it fits in the overall story. What was going on? Who, who are these people? You know, what were they talking about at the time? If we really want to understand what the Bible is really trying to say to us, we have to read it in context. We can never just read a Bible verse. The last rule of engagement, number four, it's all about Jesus. And we've been saying this for months. The Bible is a library full of books all kinds of stories and, and, and poems and discourse and law and history and letters, but it's all part of one big, amazing story, and that story leads to Jesus. The verse we started with was John 5, 39. Jesus said, you search the scriptures because you think they give you eternal, that's what we're doing, man. We're searching the scriptures, right? But look what he says, the scriptures point to me. This whole story, cover to cover, is part of one big story, and that story leads to Jesus. The word of God is about the word of God. The Bible is about Jesus, and one of the most important things we can do as we read the Bible, maybe especially the hard stuff, maybe especially the weird stuff, is to try to figure out how these hard, weird parts fit into the big story that leads to Jesus. So here we go, our four rules of engagement the Bible is a library, not a book. It was written for us, not written to us. Never read a Bible verse. Number four, it's all about Jesus. So for the next few weeks, those rules are gonna help us navigate and I hope better understand some of the hardest and weirdest and most confusing, hardest to believe stuff in the Bible. So next week, we're gonna use those tools, those rules of engagement, to dig the truth out of, we're gonna talk about not eating shrimp, whether or not you can get a tattoo, um, is it okay to have a Christmas tree, can we play football, what about all the misogyny, what about slavery, how can I read a book? How can I love a God that endorses slavery? We'll dig into it next week. And we're gonna use these rules of engagement as a shovel. Who's in? Okay, great. Let's pray. Um, Father, thank you for your word. And I thank you because it's not simple. I don't, I don't really care to worship a God who is so simple that somebody as simple as me can understand him fully. So thank you for giving us, thank you for being bigger than my mind. And thank you for writing this book that is so big and so amazing and so profound that the more we dig into it, it's like the deeper it gets. And God, I confess, I've been confused, I've been frustrated, I've even like lost faith at times because of some of this hard stuff in the Bible. So just pray that as we're moving forward into your written word, 
that through the spirit of your living word, Jesus, living inside of us, that you'll open up our eyes, that you'll give us wisdom and discernment, and that you will show us the truth so that the truth can set us free. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, if you're visiting with us today, if it's your first time, we're so happy that you're here. I hope you'll stop by our little kiosk out front and tell them that you were here. Check a little box. I'd just love to send you a phone call this week. Also, next week, don't forget to bring toothpaste, deodorant, toilet paper, and all that good stuff uh, for our boxes out front. God bless you guys. Have a great week.